This is Will Dowd from Salem Happenings. Um, I'm here today at the TV Essex Museum outside the, the popular Salem Witch Trials 1692 <laughs> exhibition. Uh, and I'm with the, one of the co-curators of it, uh, and Dan Lipkin, and he's going to take us on a tour today. Um, so first up, just want to ask you how this, uh, this exhibition came about, and how long kind of made you guys, how long did you guys spend uh, putting it together? Well, um, good morning. I don't yeah, know when you're going to be watching this, but good morning. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, it's I'm Dan Lipkin. Yeah. I'm the head librarian of the Phillips Library at the Peabody Essex Museum, and as you say, I'm one of the co-curators of the exhibition along with my colleagues Dean Lykinen, Paula Richter, and Hilary Streifer. The exhibition's on through April 2021, so we look forward to seeing you here at the museum between now and then. Um, the exhibition came together beginning in March when uh, Brian Kennedy, our director, approached Dean, in fact, to suggest that we put together an exhibition on the Salem Witch Trials. Um, it's part of our general turn towards the community. Um, Brian started uh, about a year and a half ago in July of 2019. I came, I arrived about a month before he did. And overall, we're, we're interested in exploring the local history, Salem history, and our permanent collections, which we think has been a little bit neglected um, over the last several uh, decades. So that's when it started. And uh, it's, it happened shortly after COVID, I, I think you and I, because I, that's we right. went on a tour together and uh, you said that it just kind of came about after that. I, I'm just a sort of, well, what was the inspiration for that behind, you know, just, just I mean, you guys spent sort of the COVID months putting this together, you could say, right? Right. And it was a challenging set of circumstances. We had limited access to our collections and we all had to adjust to a different way of working as well. So. All of our exhibition meetings were virtual. Um, there wasn't an opportunity to kind of sit around the table and and throw ideas at each other in the same way that that it has like done in the past. Right? Brainstorming together and things like that. Right, so. and so we had very limited time actually in the collection center, kind of looking at documents and choosing what we wanted to do. And um, Dean really had the idea to organize the exhibition around the objects that we had and then therefore the people that had owned or were associated with those objects and that became a real uh, effective way to organize the exhibition it made the document selection a little bit easier and it enabled us to tell the stories of the real people yeah so so i think we did the, the documents that are on display are from the sale the original salem witch trials documents that haven't been displayed in what some 30 years, 30 years. 1992 there was an exhibition called days of judgment here and that was the last time when any of this material was was on view. And so, why, uh, before we go inside, uh, why can't they be on display so much? Well, what could happen uh, with them? Just, yeah. The documents in particular yeah. are very fragile. You know, they're over 300 years old, right? Um, and they're very light sensitive. So any, they really can only be safely on view for six months to a year. And after that, we need to put them away. Once, once ink or, or, or print fades, you can't get it back. There's, there's no way to to conserve that or bring it back. So we have to be very, very careful about how much exposure these documents get. So we're in front of a 1494 copy of the Malayas Malapakaram, which is the premier witch hunting manual. It was written originally in 1486 by a man named Heinrich Institoris. He was an inquisitor, was very vigorously working in Germany. And this book uh, documents that the witches were in fact real. Mm -hmm. It documents how to detect witches, and then finally it explains how to prosecute them if they're found. So 
because this book was published at the dawn of the printing age, dozens and dozens of editions were published by 1520, mm -hmm. and it was used in church and secular courts throughout Europe to prosecute witches. There were probably about 100,000 people, mostly women, probably 80 to 85% women accused wow. of witchcraft, and about 50,000 of them uh, died or were executed uh, and through that prosecution. That, that's pretty crazy. Uh, and through, so this, this book is a recent copy that I believe the PBS Museum got its hands on about how many years ago? That's right, we bought it in early 2019. It was actually just before I arrived. Oh, wow. And uh, it's, it's written in Latin? It's all Latin, it's not illustrated, so it's actually visually, it's maybe a little bit boring. It doesn't have some of the you know, woodcuts that you might see. <laughs> yeah. From later editions, actually, they started to dress them up. Um, but this one is in extremely great shape, and as you can really tell, extremely great shape. It's, really got really oak, shape. it's got oak covers. Uh, and uh, so basically this is a manual guide on how to hunt, hunt witches and uh, sentence them and basically That's how right. to get rid of them. That's right, and this was really the premier manual that was used. And unlike, uh, unlike witches in New England, Europe uh, burnt burned them. That's correct, yeah. So, to burn or drown. Right. And what we want to show in, in this initial part of the exhibition is that these ideas were not new to Salem. This was not a new phenomenon. This was something that had gone on for hundreds of years before, before Salem. And the settlers who came over here from England brought those ideas with them. Uh, I think when we met, or we've gone through this before, is that uh, you had said that it was, uh, it was on the fringes by the time it reached uh, New England. So, what were some of the other areas in Europe that had that were doing witchcraft, that were that were trying witch hunting? Uh, I guess at that time, like where, where else in Europe? There wasn't so much like central, right? Know, so the part of Europe. So really, the crisis, the the core of the crisis was Germany. I think Germany was really Cologne, Bamberg, Trier, those cities. You know, hundreds of people, thousands of people died um, through witchcraft prosecutions. But as you say, you know, by the time of the 18th. By the time the 18th century, 17th century rolls around, um, you're starting to see the belief in witchcraft wane, mm -hmm. and it is still active in Scandinavia on the fringes of the, what would become the United Kingdom and in the American colonies. Okay, so now we are basically in front of the inception of the whole witch hysteria that uh, started here in Salem, uh, as, well, actually now Danvers. Yeah, Salem. Salem Village. And uh, tell us a little bit about Tichuba and her role in what happened. So Tichuba was one of the first three women to be accused of witchcraft, along with Sarah, Good. Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, correct? Tichuba was an enslaved person living in the home of the Reverend Samuel Harris, who was the, the parson of Salem, uh, Salem Village. And when she was put when she was brought in for her preliminary examination, the transcript, you know, the document of which we have right here, she not only confessed to witchcraft, but she indicated for the community that there were several other witches involved in what the community perceived to be this conspiracy. So it's really this flashpoint where it goes from this, this small, isolated incident of witchcraft into something much larger, something that really generated a lot of fear and panic in people in the community. And uh, how quickly did it spread after that, would you say? Would it, would it how, how well, far and wide did it go? What was the farthest, you know, well, was the farthest, you know, point witches were accused as far west as Billerucca and as far north as Wells, Maine. Yeah. And it was uh, probably about 200 people were accused of witchcraft. You know, 
several hundred people were involved, either as accusers or people who were accused of witchcraft, and this was extremely widespread at the time. Well, what, what eventually happened to Tichaba? Well, Tichaba was put in jail in March, and she languished in jail until the following May when she was released to another enslaver. The story is that Reverend Paris was unwilling to pay the fees, the jail fees, oh. because to get out of jail, you needed to effectively, essentially pay room and board, right? You had to pay for your stay in, in the jail. And Paris didn't want to do that. He probably didn't have the money. So she was released to some other enslaver whom we don't know who that is. And she essentially vanishes from the record. We know very wow. little about her before the witch trials. We know very little about her afterwards. And, um, you know, some Elaine Bresnan has done a little bit of research to, to try to dig into that, into records in Barbados. Mm -hmm. But she's kind of a mystery. Wow. And then just, uh, let, let's just point this. This is the actual examination of Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and, and Tichaba. Uh, That's right. And it was written by uh, Reverend Paris? This was not I'm sorry. written by Reverend Paris. This was written by Ezekiel Cheever. Okay. Um, when you see Reverend Paris documents in the show, oh, yeah, he's very good penmanship. He is very small and neat penmanship, and so it's very easily yeah. read. Okay. But this is the transcription. Uh, we've got it turned to the page here where the examination of Tichaba begins. So we are here in front of several examination documents and petitions and, you know, as a librarian, you know, th these are sort of uh, important documents to you and, uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about what we're in front of right now. Sure. The two on the, on the left here are physical examination documents from uh, June 2nd, 1692. Yeah, you can see it right there. And these were actually used, one is from the morning, 10 in the morning, and one is from the afternoon, about mm -hmm. 4, it says at the top. And these were documentations of the physical examinations that were done of the accused witches. So you had, um, here are listed the names of the people who did the examinations. It was a group of women and a male surgeon. Mm -hmm. And essentially the accused witches were stripped and every inch of their body was inspected for marks of the devil or marks of witches familiars, which were little creatures that supposedly helped the witches kind of you know, frogs their frogs and, yeah, frogs and birds and all sorts of right and and these documents were actually used at trial uh, we have the, the phrase written here jurat and curia or sworn in court on this one wow and so these were actually used at the trials probably uh, for Bridget Bishop and this one here on the right is probably the most heroic and, and moving document in the entire universe that, that I'm familiar with in the witch trials. And mm -hmm. it is the petition of Mary Eastie from mid-September, 1692. And in it, she is asking that the court take a second look at the people who were doing the accusing, making, you know, please make sure that, you know, accusers are separated to verify that their stories are consistent and accurate. Mm -hmm. and. In this, she's making this selfless plea that you know she knows that she's, she's going to be executed. Yeah. She knows that yeah. um, she's on trial. She was eventually executed on September 22nd, and we've pulled out probably the, the most moving quote from it, and we put it up here on the wall. And that, and it says that I petition to your honors not for my own life, for I know I must die, and my appointed time is set. But if it be possible, no more innocent blood may be shed. Wow. And, you know, she, she knows the situation that she is in, but she's still concerned and thinking about other people. Mm -hmm. And 
to use, to be able to use her, highlight her words in this exhibition really for us was something that was so important to communicate the humanity and the empathy of the people who were even accused of, of witchcraft here, to show that they were thinking beyond themselves. Wow. And that's a really, it's a really powerful moment. And, and a lot of these people didn't confess to, to witchcraft. That's right. That, that, was, that was a requirement of, you know, being, you know, considered, like, not, not getting convicted of that's correct. witchcraft. Yeah. In, in fact, everybody, I believe, I believe everybody who confessed was not executed, but the people who fought the charges were. It's just strange. Yeah. yeah it's really it's, strange. It's an insane miscarriage of justice, and you see that in, yeah. in, in petitions. And she, 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 this petition was written, or she said these words, like seven days before she died. That's correct. So we, we think about September 15th. Okay. All right, so now we're going to focus on uh, some of the, one of the objects that's in the exhibition. You know, one of the things when we first went through this was I kept having to pinch myself because a lot of these things you learn about as a child in, like, you know, elementary school and in middle school and high school. So to be in front of these objects, I kept having to ask you, I don't know if you remember, it was like, we, is this really real? Like, what right. is going on here? But so, you know, between the letters and the objects, you know, this, is, this was particularly like a whoa, wow moment for me because... Tell us what is the significance about this painting over here and these walking sticks here. So these two walking sticks were owned by George Jacobs, uh -huh. who was accused and eventually executed um, for charges, you know, for crimes of witchcraft. And these two walking sticks were owned by him. He actually used these. He was an old farmer. He was arthritic. He needed canes to help him get around town. And these were actually owned and used by him. And the interesting thing is that, you know, this little display that we've got right here is something that really only Pem can do. Mm -hmm. We've got the canes that he owned. We have this painting behind us, which is the mid 19th century kind of reimagining of his trial. You see him kneeling there on the lower right corner and what's in front of him, but one of his walking sticks. Yes. And then on the other side of that painting, you have a transcription of the, his preliminary examination in which the people who accused him, including his own granddaughter, claimed that his specter or his ghost beat them with two staves or two walking sticks. Mm -hmm. And so you have the object, the later interpretation of an event including the object, and then a trial document that ref directly references wow. I mean, an event associated with these objects. Yeah. So it's really an, an amazing you know, um, interconnection between these, these And, and you're not going to get this at any other museum. No, other than the no you're <laughs> not, honestly. honestly no. So tell us a little bit real quick about some of the other objects that we can see here at, the, um, at the, this exhibition. Sure, so I was talking about the, um, the, uh, the, the nurse and bishop examinations in the Mary Eastie mm -hmm. document, the petition. They were accused in part by Joseph and Bathsheba Pope. We have a Pope cabinet there, which is a kind of a valuables cabinet yeah, owned and, by the Popes. And I, tried, I, remember, I remember you saying that the Penn had to pay a pretty penny for that. That's right, yeah. Back in 2000, um, it was discovered and went on sale, and, and actually Dean was able to pull the money together mm -hmm. to purchase it. We have a chair over on the other side here owned, that was owned by Philip and Mary English, and that was actually collected by Reverend William Bentley, who yeah. folks may know. Um, and displayed as a relic, and it's painted, its slats are painted with uh, 1692 
m.englishformaryenglish and then AP22 for April 22nd, and, which and, was the date that, that Mary was arrested. And that was unusual because, and, um, it was unusual because people usually swept the witch trials under the rug and Bentley kind of wore it on his sleeve um, mm -hmm. and was saying, you know, this is really wrong, something that had happened. So, That's right. Uh, and then uh, I believe there's a wooden slab that's here on display. Um, from from the jail as well. That's right. We have um, two wall planks from the jail. Well, okay, they were wall planks. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I wasn't sure if they were the floor or the wall. Or, yeah. So that's really interesting too. Yeah. We're in front of one of the most um, exceptional and important documents in the collection that the PBS Museum had regarding the Salem Witch Trials, and uh, it is a very fragile one and one that I don't think that exists anywhere else. And I, yeah, Dan, why don't you take it away and tell us about? It? Sure. So. Uh, we, we take care of about 550 original documents uh -huh. from the witch trials. Um, we only have the possession of one death warrant, and that's what this, this is. This is the death warrant for the execution of Bridget Bishop. The first person executed. The first person executed, that's right, and on June 10th mm -hmm. of, of 1692. And um, so most of what we have in the library is on deposit from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court archives. So most of these documents are actually owned by the state, mm -hmm. but we are the trusted repository of them. And what's exceptional about this document is that not only is it the only death warrant we have in this collection, there are some others in other locations, but this one was written by William Stoughton, who was the Chief Justice of, of the Court of Oyer and Terminer on June 8th, and you see his wax seal here on, in the left-hand margin. And in this document, he essentially condemns Bridget Bishop to death and says that in two days, she is to be executed. Uh, he wrote this on June 8th. The other really exceptional part of this document is the bottom piece here, which is known as an officer's return. And this was written by the sheriff, George Corwin, uh -huh. who in it, an officer's return is basically a report saying like, I've done what you asked me to do. So in this officer's return, he says, and we pulled another quote from this on the wall. I have taken the body of the within named Bridget Bishop, right, the person who has been condemned to death, to the place provided for her execution and caused the said Bridget to be hanged by the neck until she was dead. And then, you say, yeah, sign, and then he signs it here, he dates it, and he's saying, it's June 10th, I've done what you've ordered, she's dead. And as you mentioned, Bishop was the first to be executed. Wow. Well, were there any between June, the, the moment that she was um, uh, executed, and then in September? Like, like, were there any executions that happened before the, when this happened on September 22nd? Yeah, so there was essentially a group of uh, executions every month. Oh, and wow. here right behind you, we have this memorial wall mm -hmm. listing all the victims of the witch trials. There are 25 of them uh, in a chronological order by date of death. Mm -hmm. And you see that there are deaths in June, June. Oh, July. Right, right July, there was a set of hangings. August, there was a set of hangings in, in September. And if wow. visually you can see that the crisis grows. There are a little bit more in July and a little bit more in August and a little bit more in September. And in September is when the, boat, the governor, was that, was that, that was, that's right, eight people were executed in September. Wow. Um, so this is kind of, whenever I went through, this is kind of like the penultimate kind of mm -hmm. thing for right. the exhibition. Tell us real, you know, quickly about how um, it ends. I think that the, the books that you have displayed over here, just, just tell us a little bit about them and sort of their significance in history. Sure. So we highlight a few publications that were issued in the immediate... Would you, would you consider them to be books? Yes. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. 
Um, they were published in the immediate aftermath of the trials and the, the few years following the trials. One is Cotton Mather. Um, he writes essentially a defense of the trials at the request of the governor, who also institutes a publications ban, so nobody else can publish anything about the trials. He doesn't want criticism to get out. We have another book by a man named Thomas Mall, who was a Quaker, and this was published in 1695. And it was really the first time that somebody put their own name on a document or a book that was critical of the governor, um, the state, and the, the process of the witch trials. And he was jailed. Um, ultimately, he was acquitted, and uh, Tad Baker, who wow. was one of our expert consultants working on this exhibition with us, really considers it to be kind of the birth of freedom of the press and, and freedom of speech because he was acquitted. So it's, it's a remarkable set of a few very rare books. Most of the mall books were probably burned. Wow, um, because of the, yeah. Because so there was so a publication the ban and, and the government didn't wow. want more getting out, so. Well, that, yeah, thank you so much today for taking us around, you know, taking us through this exhibition. You know, we suggest everyone sees it. Uh, and then uh, one of the things too that I wanted to say was that it ends with all of the different historical locations and places that you can visit here in Salem and in Danvers that um, basically either memorialize the victims or is basically like the inception, like the parsonage, the Paris parsonage. Um, and yeah, so uh, come out and check it out. It's on uh, display till April, April, early April. Early April. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for your time.